fact, why don't you join me and, and we'll just pray this morning and ask God's blessing on his word today. Father, what a joy it is to come together this morning and to sing the praises we have uh, sung of you, you the ancient of days, the one who inhabits eternity, the one who uh, is never tired, never grows weary, the one who never sleeps nor slumbers. Father, you have all things under your dominion and your control, and nothing in this world, nothing, Lord God, is outside of your purposes and plans ultimately. And Father, even the evil one and his work, Lord, will ultimately come to naught because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, that he has uh, conquered the grave, that he has disarmed the principalities and powers and has made a public spectacle of them, overcoming them by rising from the dead. And so this morning we come in that, in that sense, Lord, aware that we, we are but a part of a process, a great plan, a redemptive plan that you're unfolding. And Lord, what a joy and what a privilege we have to worship you and to praise you and exalt you together. Father, we do ask that you would watch over those who are traveling today, that you would keep them uh, safe and keep them focused, Lord, on, uh, on you and on what's important in this day. And that, Father, they'd come back, uh, Lord, and be able to fellowship again with us next week. In the meantime, we thank you for the visitors that have come amongst us. We thank you for uh, those that are here as our guests. But, Lord, we, we know ultimately, uh, Father, they're here because you've sovereignly brought them here. And so bless each family today as we come to your word. Give us ears to hear, uh, eyes to see, and behold wonderful things in your word. Lord, speak to our hearts and help us as a church, for we need your help. Lord, we are in and of ourselves unable to do anything, anything uh, to, to further your purposes, but for the sake of Christ and his work of grace in our lives. So God, bless your word and bless this time for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. In 1968, in the Mexico Olympics, a famous statement emerged from a marathon runner, uh, a marathon race, when over one hour after the winner crossed the finish line in the stadium, a lone figure wearing the colors of Tanzania shuffled into the stadium. 26.2 miles later. He was the last man to finish the race, and his name was John Stephen Aquari. He had been severely injured, cutting and dislocating his knee and hurting his shoulder in, the, in a fall about the halfway mark of the marathon. He was in pain. He was struggling and, pain, and pained with every step of that last half marathon, but as he entered the arena, the crowd arose and applauded him. In that single moment, he established himself in the spectators' minds in a way that not even the winner of the race had done. When asked afterwards why he did not quit after he had fallen and injured himself, knowing that there was no hope of winning a medal, this was his reply, this famous Phrase. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. This statement of Stephen Aquari embodies, does it not, the spirit of endurance, a, a, deep, well, a deep welling up of strength within, uh, in the midst of great adversity to press on towards the finish line. And like John Stephen Aquari, we, the citizens of the kingdom of God, must say, my Lord and my King did not call me to start the race of faith, but he called me to endure in this race until I cross the finish line. But you might be sitting there this morning and say, well, how do we do this? How do we as Believers, as Christians, as those who gather here at Grace Church of the Valley, how do we endure when we are feeling weak and broken? And when we have that overwhelming sense of, I want to give up, I just want to quit, it's too hard. 
Well, this morning, I invite you to join me in God's word in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 to start with Hebrews 12, where we're going to see that there is a way forward, even when we feel like giving up and it seems that our own faith has perhaps been damaged beyond repair. Maybe you've come this morning in that sense of, you know, I'm just not sure if it's worth striving in this life to honor and glorify Christ. I hope that's not you, but if, if, if that is you, then you're in good company because many have struggled in this way throughout the generations. As we come to Hebrews, I want you to understand this book. It's a sermonic letter. It's perhaps the longest sermon in the New Testament, and it's by the Holy Spirit. We don't know the man who wrote it, but we do know it's inspired And the Holy Spirit in this letter exhorts the readers to endure in times of great persecution. These primarily Jewish followers of Jesus had lost everything for the sake of identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior. They were oppressed. They were downtrodden. They were persecuted. And they were at times thinking of giving up on this business of following Jesus Christ. And so the author encourages his readers to keep running the race of faith in Christ. He reminds them who Jesus is and how he is the full and final revelation of God. He reminds them in in chapter 1 and verse 3 of Hebrews that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus is more exalted than the angels, having sat down at the right hand of God. He's completed his work. He is greater than Moses because he fulfilled all that Moses revealed. He is a better high priest than Aaron because he substituted a better covenant through a better blood sacrifice. And alongside all of these glorious encouragements that the the author brings to his readers, There's this dark thread that runs through the book, a thread of warning, a thread of exhortation. There's an increasing intensity from the author as he warns his readers, firstly, to avoid the dangers of spiritually drifting, of spiritually doubting, of spiritual dullness, or even worse, of spiritually departing from the faith altogether and disowning Jesus as their Messiah. And he urgently calls them. He urgently pleads with them to remain faithful and true to Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, he gets to that great hall of faith. And there he reminds them of the many historical examples of the witnesses, those who have already testified of the faithfulness of God and the ability to run the race and to complete the race. And as he unfolds chapter 12, Hebrews 12, 1, he exhorts the entire body of Hebrew believers to run the race of faith with endurance. Listen to these clear commands from this author. It says in Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight Notice he's not just writing to an individual here. He's writing to the church. He's writing to a congregation of people. And he's saying, we are surrounded. We must endure. We must lay aside every weight. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Yes, there is an individual response required. That's true. But there's also clearly here in the beginning of this chapter and throughout this chapter a call to a corporate nature of our faith, to the corporate reality of our faith. This is Grace Church of the Valley. You are Grace Church of the Valley. And as such, you have a responsibility to one another. I don't need to mention that there are some 32 direct one another statements in the New Testament, some 50 statements that relate to and inferences to serving and encouraging and edifying and building up one another. 
This is the context, if you like, of this chapter. And the constant pressure and influence of the world and of the distraction of our own flesh and the deceptions of the devil are out to stumble us, to crush us, and to cause us to give up the race of faith. Well, how does this author suggest that we endure? How does he say we should press on and endure this race? Well, he says in verse one, by looking, verse two, sorry, by looking to Jesus. And by verse, in verse three, considering what Jesus endured. There's such a richness in this sermonic letter, but here we see that we are to reflect on who Jesus Christ is, Hebrews 1, but we're also to reflect on what Jesus Christ endured in order to save you and me. And in practice, how this works out for you and me is that every Christian then has a responsibility to cultivate strong endurance in other people around them and helping others to complete the race of the faith as they press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is hard. It's hard to be a genuine Christian. I just sat in a quipping hour this morning and Josh was bringing to us an understanding of, of the fruit of the Spirit in the area of faithfulness and gentleness. These are not things that come easy to us. It's hard. And when we fall short, there are many who want to point the finger and bring judgment. And sometimes we just say, you know, it's, it's, it's just not worth it. Well, as we come to Hebrews 12 and verse 12, and the verses we're going to look at this morning are Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17, I want you to read along with me and consider this passage in light of our responsibility to encourage one another. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. And God will add a blessing to the reading and the study of his word. The thrust of this text is, as I've said, to call you and me to live in such a way together corporately that we cross the finish line because it's the crossing of the finish line that brings the ultimate glory to God himself. And the Holy Spirit here in our passage gives the Hebrew church three clear directives for running the race of faith so that together they can finish the race. Three directives. I want you to see these in the text. Look back at the text with me. It says in verse 12, we are to strengthen. We are to strengthen. 13, we are to make straight. Verse 14, we are to pursue. And I want you, what I want you to notice here is that all of these statements are second person plural commands. And it's kind of interesting because I'm an NAS, NASB guy but I'm preaching from the ESV this morning. And what you'll notice in the ESV is it seems like this directive is to individuals. Therefore, it says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. But if you look at the original uh, Greek here, it's really corporate and it's really calling the readers to be concerned about others' drooping hands, others' weak knees, and others who need to be healed and strive for peace. It's really talking about your responsibility and my responsibility to the person sitting next to you. It could be your wife, it could be your children, it could be your neighbor, it could be anybody in this auditorium. It 
In other words, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you've surrendered your life to His rule, His lead in your life, then you are to serve and edify others. And my goal this morning is simply this, that you will see that you have a responsibility to be involved in strengthening and edifying others at Grace Church of Valley. That's my simple goal. Now you know it, you can go home. Not quite. Because you want to know how that happens. How does that happen? How do we get there? And is this just an isolated passage in the New Testament? Is this just something that's related to the writer of Hebrews here? No. Absolutely not. Consider similar exhortations in the New Testament. Galatians 6.2, it says, Bear with one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 15.1, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5.14-15, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And Hebrews 12 here gives these three directives for us as a church then to fulfill this call to help one another. The first directive is simply this, encourage one another to be strong. Verse 12, the, the first word in this sentence of verse 12, therefore, points back, does it not, to the foundation of our encouragement, that because of the blessings of God's loving discipline, because of the endurance of Christ in our lives, we get to share in the transcendent holiness of God. We get to bear the fruit of righteousness, and we get to experience this peace that passes all understanding. And because of this, we are now responsible to lift the drooping hands and to strengthen the weak knees of others. Now, drooping hands and weak knees describe an exhausted runner, one who needs to be strengthened. The runner needs to overcome the discouragement and a mindset that's telling him or her, you can't go on. This discouragement and despair is part of the human body's flesh working against the runner. And they're identified in this text by the runner dropping his hands to his side and stumbling and, and feeling weak at the knees. That jelly-like, jello-like feeling that comes where you think, if I keep going, I'm just going to collapse. If, if, if I keep going, I'm going, to, I'm going to end up in hospital. And you may well do if you're a marathon runner. I've seen that happen. Total exhaustion. I watched a man only 80 yards from the finish line after 22 plus miles fall over and stumble and not be able to get up. He was literally clawing his way towards the finish line. He was so exhausted, he couldn't make it. And his father came out from the sidelines and picked him up and carried him, helped him across the finish line. The word strengthen in our text translates the, the word literally, what would literally be called the paralyzed knees. In spiritual life, we can feel spiritually paralyzed by discouragement and we can lose sight of the fact that God loves us and God cares about us and God's concerned about us and he watches over us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He knows every pain and every struggle and every discouragement that you find yourself in every day of your life. This idea of strengthening speaks to resolving then in our minds uh, to be strong and not to give up, no matter how tough the terrain gets. In a long-distance race, this is where the runner experiences what we call the second wind, and he discovers a source of energy above and beyond what is his own. The way we encourage someone who's in this state spiritually is to point them to the unchanging promises of God, to his truths, and to pray those things for others, to share them with others. This is what Paul and Barnabas did 
with the saints in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, all, all churches that were persecuted and struggling in the faith. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22 through 23, it says, they went to them and they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That sounds like a, a counterproductive statement, doesn't it? Well, we're here to encourage you. We're going to encourage you by telling you that you're going to go through many tribulations. You can, you can respond to that. It, it's, it just seems counterproductive, but it's not. Because you have to understand that the Christian life is difficult. And Hebrews 12 is all about this. And you say, well, why does God allow such trials and tribulations? Because God is in the business of disciplining us to become godly, to be spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, to walk by faith and not by sight, to love Him, to serve Him, to honor Him, to worship Him. And He does that through the discipline difficulties, what Hebrews 12 calls the disciplines of a loving heavenly father. So if you've come to Jesus Christ because you heard that you're going to have a better job and a better marriage and you're going to have more money in the bank and things are going to go well with you and it's going to be like walking down the garden path in this world, then dear friend, you've been lied to. You've been lied to. If you want to live a righteous life and be truthful in your love towards others and call them to follow in the righteousness that God has called them to, you will be persecuted. You just will. America used to be known as a Christian nation. It's really not that anymore. We used to be the, the majority in this nation. We're now the minority. The same imagery of exhaustion and weakness comes from an Old Testament text, and I really think this is what was in the author's mind as he wrote this. It's found in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35, which is where the author draws this imagery from. Israel had endured evil kings and false prophets and threats and invasions from uh, foreign kings and armies, not to mention the growing internal disobedience within the nation. And the faithful within the nation were despairing of even ever experiencing peace, of, of ever getting to the, this place where the, they would have this land of milk and honey forever. And Isaiah promises future blessing for them, and he calls them in Isaiah 35, 3 through 4, he says, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Dear friend, it doesn't matter what injustice is being done to you in this life. It doesn't matter how difficult it is to be a Christian in your workplace or in your marriage or in your home or with your children or in any place of this world. It really doesn't matter because ultimately we have the promise that you will be saved. So trust the Lord. Well, the verb tense here for strengthen is interesting. It requires them to adopt this approach as a Christian right now. Not, not down the track, right now, this morning, we are to adopt this approach. Listen, if you're not committed to run with endurance the race of faith, then you simply won't run. You will not run. You will not be used of the Lord. You will not be raised up by God. You will not be effective for the Lord. You'll give up. You'll say, I've had enough. I can't go on. This text calls us to run with a strong determination to win the race. Now, this is not simply the, the humanistic idea of, well, I can do anything if I just believe in myself. That's not what we see here. The fact is we do have hands that are drooping and we do have knees that are weak and feeble if left to our own resources. 
But this call to lift up our hands, this call to strengthen our knees is possible. As Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who what? Who strengthens me. Paul's determination did not come based on his own finite resources, but from the confidence that he who began a good work in him would perfect it, would complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And as a believer, you will face these discouragements and you will face outright attacks which can debilitate you and cause you to droop and have drooping arms and weak knees and to consider that your faith so weak that you can't even move on. But believe me, at the end of the day, if you set your eyes on Jesus and if you're in a good church where others will stir you up to have greater faith, you will cross the finish line. This is the work of God. See, it's God in us, isn't it? It's not just God out there, pie in the sky. It's not God who's, who's just, he's done this great redemptive work, which he has, and he's secured us for all eternity, which he has, but it's God investing in us. It's God working through us. It's the Spirit of God manifesting Himself in the fruit of the Spirit in a life of surrender and commitment and peace and holiness. I don't know about you, but I want my life to reflect God's glory and the only way that can happen is if I surrender it to Him. It's not always easy, is it, to help others? But we need to. I've heard some people who faced of people who have faced some kickback from other believers in their church community and they've decided they had better things to do than be part of that church. And they simply moved on. This, this is just wrong thinking. It's wrong because the focus is in that in that thought is on self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice. This mindset of self-preservation is really a self-serving mindset rather than serving others to the glory of God. And believe me, I'm not asking for any of you to come up and make my life horrible. I'm not asking for that. But the reality is we're human beings and we will offend one another and we will upset one another and we will cross the paths in life of one another. We just will. And if we have no endurance then how can Christ be glorified? How can love be manifested? How can forgiveness be presented? How can there be patience and kindness and goodness and meekness and self-control? How can the fruit of the Spirit be seen if it's not seen in the difficult times of life? One pastor wrote this. He said, weariness and injuries are inevitable in this lifelong race. The implication is it's not going to be easy to finish the course The crucial question is, will you drop out because of the hardships or will you face these problems and the strength that God provides and keep on running? Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, cheer the heart when the limbs are weak. Tell the doubting that God is faithful. Tell those that feel the burden of sin that it was for sinners that Christ died. Tell the backsliders that God never does cast away his people. Tell the despondent, the despondent that the Lord delights in mercy. Tell the distracted that the Lord does not devise means to bring back his banished. Covet the character of Barnabas, for he was the son of encouragement. Study the sacred art of speaking a word in season. Apprentice yourself to the comforter. Acquaint yourself with the sacred art of comforting the sad and the grieving and let your own troubles and trials qualify you to sympathize and relieve. You will be of great value in the church of God if you acquire the art of compassion and are able to help those that are bowed down, end quote. What a fantastic insight into what this means to strengthen one another. And like that Olympic runner I mentioned at the beginning, this message, dear Christian, is for you and for me that we be desirous to help everyone cross the line. Let's not leave anyone behind. They may be limping, they may be hurting with every step, but they will cross the finish line as they look to Jesus and as you and I take the strength God gives us to lift them up and bear their burdens. We have become partakers of Christ, Hebrews 3.14 says, 
if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So, will you as a church be determined to leave no one behind, but rather strengthen each other to run this race of faith, knowing that our avenger is coming and he will soon rescue us and fulfill his promises to us? Encourage one another to be strong. Second directive. The second directive in this passage is in verse 13, and it's encourage one another to stay on course. It says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This word translated straight paths speaks of the ruts of a wagon wheel that a wagon wheel makes after many passes along the way. To make straight paths means to stay in the lane without being sidetracked and becoming disqualified from the race. And what the author is doing is he's painting this picture here that we need to have a lifestyle that is true according to the Word of God. This is the only way you and I can actually protect ourselves from stumbling and falling from the faith. And so we need to help each other. We need to take personal responsibility for our own conduct and actions. Yes, we need to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Yes, but we also need to help others do the same. And you might say, well, how do I make straight paths? Well, by following the ancient path. Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and then walk in it and find rest for your souls. Much of the trials and troubles we have in life is because we're not walking and living according to the word of God. Proverbs 4, 26 to 27 states that you should watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot instead from evil. In Psalm 27, 11, the psalmist says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. See, knowing God's word will allow you and me to walk consistently regardless of our enemies' attempts to push us away from the truth and from living a life that pleases and honors God. Psalm 119, 105 states, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 23 says he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 119, one through eight says, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. They have ordained your precepts. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. And then I shall not be ashamed. When I look upon all your commandments, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. The danger with getting out of, outside of the parameters of God's word and what's true into worldly ways is that we will fail and we will fall and we will put our knees out of joint as it were. And this will knock us out of the race of faith. The, the, the phrase here, put out of joint, is actually better translated to turn aside. Paul calls the widows to live above reproach, and he sadly recalls for some of them have strayed after Satan. They've turned aside. They've followed the ways of Satan. Don't, don't ever think you're beyond that. Any one of us can fall into that trap. 2 Timothy 4.4, Paul explains to Timothy that in these last days, difficult times will come, and some, he says, will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off after myths. You know, there's lots of opinions in this world, and God doesn't care about any of them. The only thing God cares about is His truth. We're such a knowledgeable people. We now have Google. We can, we can find anything we want to find on Google. And yet the sad thing is how many of us 
come to the word and study it and say, Lord, help me to walk in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. This is no different than in Jeremiah's day. The nation of Israel had forsaken God's truth. They turned aside to their own ways. They'd begun to worship idols and false teachers and following their ways. And he says, for my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods and they've stumbled for their way, from their ways, from the ancient paths to walk in the byways. Jeremiah 18 and verse 15. And I want you to note back in our text in verse 13 here, that as we run on these straight paths, God provides healing and wholeness to our lives. We need to watch the path of our feet so that we will be established. We are to lovingly appoint, point others to the truth, which can correct wrong thinking and wrong decisions and bring about restoration to their souls. This is really what discipleship is, isn't it? To, to make disciples is really about imparting God's truth into the hearts and minds of others so that they understand it, so that they can comprehend it, and they can put it into practice in their lives and thus experience the healing and the blessing of God in their lives, in their families, and their businesses, in every aspect. And so again, I ask you, will you choose to come alongside those who you see uh, drifting or doubting or growing dull spiritually, maybe even thinking of departing from the faith altogether? Will you come alongside them and will you encourage them to be strong, to stay true to the word? Well, that brings me to the third directive. We need to follow if we're to finish the race. We must encourage one another to be strong in the Lord. Yes, we need, we need to encourage one another to seek to live in the truth of God's word. But there's a third one here, and that's verses 14 through 17. We need to encourage one another to a godly lifestyle. Verses 14 through 15 all form one sentence, and they put feet to the previous directive of staying on track. The straight pathway has two distinct qualities. One is... To pursue peace, and the other is to pursue purity. To pursue peace and to pursue purity. Believers are positionally at peace with God through our union in Christ. I was reading this morning Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace the, the author is speaking about here is, is not just positional peace, but it's an actual peace. It's a real peace. It's a, it's a peace that we experience daily. It's the fruit of the gospel peace. We're called to live this peace out practically as far as it depends on us. In Psalm 34 verse 14, it says we're to depart from evil and do good. We're to seek peace and pursue it. Imagine waking up every morning and going, today I'm going to pursue peace. That might be a different agenda from what you've had in the past. That would be a good agenda. Today I'm going to pursue peace. This peace he's speaking of is, is very much about a relational peace. The, 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 the believers in the New Testament were to live peacefully with other believers. Mark 9 verse 50, Jesus says, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, what will, you, what will make it salty again? Have salt in yourself, Jesus says, and be at peace with one another. Wow. Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. There's an implication in that verse, isn't there? If I don't pursue peace, then will the God of peace be with me? 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And again, I want to remind you, the call here is to strive for peace with others, 
to help others have peace in their lives. Matthew 5, 9 through 11, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called sons of God's. Slanderers and gossips are not peacemakers. Slanderers and gossips cause trouble. They cause division. They cause anger and frustration. And and people who presume and assume things create all kinds of conflict in relationships. But we're not to be like that. We're to pursue peace. Romans 12, 14 through 18, blessed are those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of God. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is being crucified at Calvary, could pray, Father, what? Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's the heart of peace, one who pursues peace. It's not always possible. Because true peace requires two parties to agree. It requires two parties to submit to the Prince of Peace. So it's not always possible, but pursue it we must. But we also need to pursue purity. We're to pursue the purity, for for without holiness, we're told in, in verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's the pure of heart that will see God. It's the one who's set apart to God. This word holiness just simply means that I see my life as not belonging to myself or to the devil or to the world or to any other human being, but my life belongs to God. I exist for his glory. I exist for his purposes. And we need to ask God daily, to lead us into the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. J.C. Ryle defines holiness as the habit of agreeing with the mind of God and his word. It's a great way to start the day. God, I agree with you. I am a sinner. I am a sinful man. There is no good thing in me. God, today I need you. I need Christ. I need the spirit of God. I need the grace that you pour out so abundantly. I need every day of my life to depend upon you, Lord Jesus. J.C. Ryle goes on to define the holy person this way. He says, a holy person will endeavor to turn away from every known sin and to keep every known commandment. A holy person will strive to be like Jesus Christ. A holy person will pursue meekness and endurance and gentleness and patience and kindness and control of their tongue. A holy person will pursue self-control and self-denial. A holy person will pursue love and brotherly kindness. A holy person will pursue a spirit of mercy and benevolence towards others. A holy person will pursue purity of heart. A holy person will pursue the fear of God, reverence for God. A holy person will pursue humility. A holy person will pursue faithfulness in his duties and relationships in life. A holy person will pursue spiritual mindedness. By the way, That's just his headings. (laughs) That's his headings of a 12-page article he wrote. It's incredible. If you want to read it, come and see me. I'll give you a copy. I have a few up here for you afterwards. So we need to pursue peace. But we also need to pursue purity. And and under this pursuing purity, there's four dangers he says that we need to avoid. Verses 15 through 17. There's so much in here, and I'm just going to skip across the top of this this morning, Uh, but there are four dangers here that we need to avoid. And, And the first thing I want you to notice is that in verse 15, he says, see to it, see to it, that's that's a participle. It's a verb, but it's a participle. And, and, and it's, the, it's the Greek word episkopeo. It means to continually be aware of others around you. It's the word that, that's used of eldership. They are the episkopos. They are the overseers. They are those who are watching and learning and seeing and observing the lives of others. They're constantly aware of others in the church. 
And he applies the same word to believers. You see, Jesus wants you and me to be vigilant and to watch out for one another. It's one of the things I love about this church. I'm not saying it's perfect. There is no perfect church, right? I'm here, so that's a bit of a problem. There's no perfect church. But in the midst of this church, what I see is a love for one another. What I see is a a genuine joy in serving God, and, and I want to foster and encourage that this morning towards one another. It's being applied here to believers. Make sure that you're not in danger. Make sure that others are not in danger. Uh, Don't don't just walk past somebody who you see sitting in the corner with, with downcast shoulders and head bowed down. Go to them and sit next to them and say, brother, sister, can can I pray for you? Can I help you? Can I encourage you? Don't think, oh, that's Andy's job. He's the pastor of discipleship. Now you know why I'm preaching this message, really. Okay? Yes, it is my job. Of course it's my job. Of course it's my responsibility. But it's equally yours according to the measure of grace and faith God has given to you. According to what you can allocate to that process. Every one of us must be about this business of helping others avoid dangers. What are these dangers? Well, there's four of them. The first is this, of falling short of God's grace. Failing to obtain, it says, the grace of God and therefore missing the blessing of God. This person who misses the grace of God is in in grave danger of becoming an apostate because to miss the grace of God is to actually depend upon your own self. The, 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 The idea of 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 not having God's grace or not walking in the grace of God, the only other place you can walk is in the place of pride. And God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. To miss God's grace is to to depend upon yourself for your salvation, for your sanctification, for your glorification. It's to think, I'm better than other people. You're not. We are not. We are all Before God, outside of Christ, not good, sinners, destined for hell. A person who questions the sufficiency of God's grace to save them and secure them is in dangerous ground. Dear friend, by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Every other religion in the world except Christianity has a mixture of grace and works. Christianity alone says that you are justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for God's glory alone. There is no place for you and me this morning to boast of anything in our lives. Our only boast is Jesus Christ. He's our only boast. So don't miss the grace of God. Live in it, walk in it, breathe it, experience it, speak it, acknowledge it every day of your life. Secondly, don't miss the, don't become one who has bitterness of heart. He says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. This bitter hearted person will defile and destroy others around them. Bitterness is the result of calling into question God's sovereignty over your life. It's not fear is the essence of bitterness. It's not right. It's it's what builds in your heart and you become embittered towards people and towards events. Bitterness leads one to become defiant and angry at God and it causes trouble relationally everywhere. This bitter, discontented heart is it's like a virus, COVID virus, and it spreads to others and it defiles them also with discontent, with questions, with doubts, and ultimately with a bitter heart towards God, a heart that's angry. Why God? And all God says is, well, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
Were you there when I created the Leviathan? When you, were you there when I put the stars and led them out and named every one of them? Were you there, Job? And he just displays his power and his greatness and, and, and his majesty to Job. And Job falls on his face and says, oh, who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? I've spoken once. He says, I, I've said things I shouldn't have said and I repent and dust and ashes. Bitterness of heart is at its root pride. Pride that you think you deserve something which you, which you didn't get. Bitter because your father didn't leave you the inheritance you thought you deserved. Bitter because you didn't get the job over a junior. Bitter because it just goes on and on. And it's ugly. And it's divisive. And it's the opposite of who we're to be as believers. We're... We're to avoid the danger, yes, of missing the grace of God of bitterness, but we're also to avoid the danger, thirdly, of sensuality. This word, the immoral, the, 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 um, immoral person, this word immoral is the word pornos, from which we get pornography. Or, or you could say it's godless, this godless person like Esau, some translations have. This, this person cares only about their own fleshly sensual urges and satisfying them. They don't care what way or vehicle or manner, they, they just want to satisfy their sensual desires and their lusts. And sadly, in our generation, in our world today, we have turned lust and redefined it as love. Love has nothing to do with what you want. Genuine, godly, biblical love has everything to do with what you desire the good for another person. It has to do with God and his love for others. And we're to consider, as, as, as believers, we're to be those who consider others as more important than ourselves. Hebrews 13, 4 reminds us to not let the marriage bed de be defiled. Ephesians 5 warns us that sensuality and fornication, which just means sex before marriage, and we could throw adultery in there as well, sex while to another person while in marriage. These will all be judged. Why? Because at the root of every one of those things is an idolatrous heart. It's the worship of your own immoral desire. And the sexually immoral person is defined as godless throughout the scriptures because earthly things are their focus like Esau in our text, who sold his own birthright. And that birthright was a spiritual birthright. It wasn't just the right of the inheritance as an older brother. It was the right of the spiritual blessings of God coming from the father to the son. And he sold it away. He sold it for a single meal. He let the, the desires of his own lusts and, and, and his own hunger drive him to trade that which God wanted to give him that would have eternal blessings for a single moment of pleasure. Well, the sexually immoral are irreligious. They have no sacred values. They have no honor for God, no spiritual desires. They are totally secularized. That is, they, they live their lives as though God does not exist. And Esau followed his own lusts we read on and, and we find that from this point Esau went out and in Genesis 26 verses 34 through 35 he obtained two Hittite wives which grieved his covenant-fearing parents Isaac and Rebekah greatly. And that leads us to the fourth and final thing we need to Avoid, and that's of having no hope. Verse 17 defines this hopelessness by pointing to Esau as an example. He says, for you know Esau, that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he found no place for repentance. You say, why is that? Why, why, why did Esau, I mean, he's... He, he's He's weeping, he's in tears, he's, he seems broken. Why did he not find repentance? Why was he rejected by God? 
because his tears were simply tears of remorse. There is a worldly sorrow, Paul writes in to the Corinthians, there's a worldly sorrow, and that sorrow doesn't lead to a transformation or a change of life. It doesn't lead to repentance. It's sorrow that I got my hand caught in the cookie jar. It's, it's sorry that I missed out on that blessing. It's sorrow over all of the things that I'm, I'm failing in in life. But that sorrow is not going to change anything because the sorrow, uh, the godly sorrow that we should have is a sorrow that leads to us acknowledging that we need God and that we need to die to self and that we need to put off the flesh and put off those lustful desires and walk in the ancient path. Walk in righteousness, walk in truth. What are the implications to, to this passage? What are the implications to you and me? I've tried to give you an application at each point. Will you be this person? Will you pursue holiness? Will you pursue purity? Will you pursue uh, walking according to the truth? Will you pursue being a person that, that strengthens others? Will all of these things become a part of your life? That's the call here. But think, listen to these implications. Firstly, healthy churches require every member of the body to be an encourager of others to run the race of faith. By the way, if you want to overcome your lustful, self-centered pleasures and desires, go serve, serve some other people. That'll kill them. Because you can't be feeding your flesh at the same time as dying to your flesh. When you're serving others out of a true heart, when you're giving of yourselves to others and meeting their needs, your needs disappear. And you find true fulfillment. True fulfillment. Secondly, another implication we are responsible to encourage other, other believers to remain strong in their faith in Jesus Christ. We are to be vigilant to call each other to stay on track and live godly lifestyles and adorn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by the way we live. May Grace Church of the Valley be strengthened in its determination and in its direction and in its diligence to run this race of faith Together, together. Yes, we have an elder board. Yes, we have deacons. Yes, we have people serving all over the place. But you, dear friend, if you're none of those, you are as much responsible to the good of others in this church as the elders, as the pastors, as the deacons. Thirdly, third implication. Let's evaluate our own hearts today. Let's see if we have obtained and do walk in the grace of God as seen in our pursuit of relational peace with one another and a life of holiness. That's how you know if you've obtained the grace of God. Esau went on living in sin. If you've obtained the grace of God, you will kill sin in the flesh. You're either killing sin or sin will kill you. Fourthly, may we by God's grace avoid bitterness and sensuality and materialism and instead live out our lives in view of what's been promised us in eternity. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade and it's reserved in heaven for us. And I love the way that this author finishes out the chapter, and I wish I had time to read the rest of the chapter, but let me just read a few verses to you, because it'll help you understand how secure that inheritance really is. It says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Hebrews 12, 22 through 25. Our Lord and our King didn't just call you to start the race. He called you to finish it. 
He didn't just call this church into being to start. He called this church into being to finish. And if you're a young person here, you may not be aware, but there are people in this church who are closer to death than you are. And some of them need encouragement too. And then there's young ones in this church who are just starting and they're falling on their face day after day, week after week, and they get up and they confess their sin and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Get up and run the race of faith, being empowered, being strengthened through the grace of God as you live out each day. This is the call. And so may our hearts this morning be softened towards God towards one another. May we draw near to him. May we build relationships with each other, trusting in his super abounding grace. And dear one, if you're not saved here this morning, if you don't know the grace of God, if you're enslaved to sin, then the call of this passage is simply turn from your sin, turn from your wickedness, and look to the Lord Jesus Christ who came not to judge you, but to seek and to save lost sinners. And you can do that even as I pray. You can just ask, confess your sin to God and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to come and, and take control of your life as you surrender your heart, your will, your desires, your mind, your aspirations to him. And if you'll do that today, the Bible says you will be saved. Join me in prayer.